The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. First this week, after a $450 million expansion overseen by the architects Dillus, Cofidio and Renfro, the Museum of Modern Art in New York reopens its doors on the 21st of October. With 47,000 square feet of additional gallery space and a multicultural story to tell about the history of modern art. Nancy Kenny, our senior editor in New York, met this week with Sarah Suzuki, the drawings and prints curator who's in charge of the reopening, and Rajendra Roy, the museum's chief curator of film, to talk about these major changes in the museum. Nancy began by asking whether all this new space means that there's a lot more works on view. It does. Sarah, you probably have those numbers memorized. (laughs) Pretty close to memorized. It does. It allows us to show a fair amount more of the collection. So we expanded by about 47,000 square feet. That's a growth of about a third. Historically, we've shown probably on average about 1,500 collection works at any given time. That doesn't count what's happening in the temporary exhibition galleries. We're up to about 2,500 now. So a growth of about 1,000 objects. And almost every gallery is devoted to the permanent collection, isn't it? At our reopening moment, it is. So the entire building, top to bottom, in our temporary exhibition spaces and in our collection spaces, they're all populated with works from our collection. Okay, well, let's talk about the permanent collection. Uh, For decades, the Museum of Modern Art has presented this authoritative narrative on the history of modern art, sort of decreeing what was important and what was not. The museum's founding director, Alfred Barr, drew up a famous 1936 diagram mapping the origins and influences of modern art that seemed to endure for decades, really, um, with an arrow pointing from cubism to suprematism and from Dada to surrealism and so on and so on. Now you've reinstalled your permanent collection to tell a different story with some unexpected artists added and a more global view of modern and contemporary art. Did all this arise out of a sense that the story of modern art presented by the museum was skewed in some way? I'm not sure if it was skewed. For me, it just wasn't ever really the truth, um, or it was a part of the truth. And I think, again, I'm speaking for myself um, over the the last 12 years as as a member of the Curatorial Leadership Group. I just wanted to make sure we got closer to telling different stories that would lead us closer to the truth about the complexity of modernism. I think Barr was not, it wasn't that he was off the mark. It's just that his torpedo kind of went in a straight line. And we're thinking of ourselves certainly not in any kind of mechanized militaristic mode anymore. Um, but uh, maybe if we're still thinking about the ocean, we're, we're a larger net hoping to kind of capture a lot more of what's in that beautiful sea of modern and contemporary art um, than we perhaps were kind of aiming for with that more kind of strategic direct line approach before. There's one other thing I'd add to that. I love that metaphor, by the way, (laughs) of the net, um, which is that Alfred Barr also said of the institution, and I'm going to paraphrase because he said it more elegantly than I will, but he said, essentially, the Museum of Modern Art is a laboratory and the public is invited to participate in our experiments. And I think the idea of getting back to that DNA in in a way, something that's less codified, that feels more flexible, variable, um, taking chances, was something that also drove the thinking behind this project. Yeah, I think I heard one curator remark during the press preview that Barr would have approved. We'd like to think so. I mean, I don't think he had any fixed idea of how that um, laboratory could evolve other than it probably should. And this is definitely an evolution in 
from our DNA. I mean, I think we like to think that this is very much a part of MoMA's DNA is, is how we've decided to move forward and progress. Um, and that doesn't abandon our history. Certainly, if you come to the galleries, you will definitely feel like you're at MoMA, you know. And if you have, you know, a particular work that you associate with being at MoMA, chances are you'll see it. It's just you'll encounter other things along the way that hopefully will now become a part of your essential MoMA experience. I understand that the arrangement of the galleries now is chronological, at least in part. That's correct. The spine is, is chronology. And in fact, it has been for many years. I mean, you always moved kind of chronologically with the earliest material from the collection on the fifth floor and down into kind of the mid-century moment on the fourth floor and picking up in the 70s or 80s on the, the second. The biggest difference is that chronology now includes, to a much greater extent, works beyond painting and sculpture. That has been an evolution. If you visited MoMA over the last 10 years, you will have noticed there are a mix of all of our departmental media in those galleries. But now it's really kind of come together in a, in a big way. How did the idea of combining all the mediums come about? Artists first, I would say. You know, I think the artists have been working in ways that have made our system of displaying our collection outdated meaning um, it's really hard to find an artist who is so dedicated to one certain medium that they would say, I am this and not that. Um, rather, I encounter most artists who I am this and that and that and that. Um, and so we've always, again, had it as part of our structure, as part of our inherent ways of thinking, all these different areas of specialization that will not go away. So I'm the chief curator of film. I will never be the chief curator of painting. Um, but uh, the fact that we had all of these um, these assets, these these strengths, um, we just felt like why why are we isolating them from each other in the display? Um, and that's the big change. So there was no resistance within the institution to combining everything in one gallery. Well, if you look back at what we've doing, been doing both in the collection, as Raj was saying, and also in our temporary exhibitions, it actually has been the case. If you came to see Picabia, you would see painting and and work on paper, and you'd see publications that he made. You'd hear audio of the kinds of things that he was inspired and influenced by. So it's actually something that's been happening. It's really been kind of bubbling up over the last however many years. And, you know, what we had was a physical architecture in this building in which there were galleries that were designated for painting and sculpture, for film, for prints, for drawings. And so I think the the loosening of the architecture is one of the things that really helped us kind of bring together in the collection galleries something that we've really been doing in the building for quite a while. The museum has signaled that we'll be seeing more works by women, Latinos, Asians, African-Americans, and other overlooked artists. When did the conversation about doing this start, and how did support for it come together or coalesce? Well, you know, this the real discussion about the expansion happened around the time I arrived, so around uh, 2008, let's say. Um, and that was kind of the, the kickstart of a whole new generation of chief curators coming into their positions. And in the intervening years, it was it was never a question that the the readdress of focus, let's say, would be happening. Um, it wasn't one person. It was definitely a kind of um, group acknowledgement that this is uh, these are areas that MoMA should look more deeply into, and if need be, um, really take action to fill voids that you know may have existed previous. Um, 
you know, how that manifested certainly have been fascinating, enriching, and at some point heated discussions. But the discussion was never should we or shouldn't we. It was like how? How should we do this? And I think we've been in step with um, lots of other areas of study. I mean, certainly um, in in the academic realm, ideas about kind of mining histories that we thought we knew well to better understand them in, in all of their kind of robust facets, which has brought to the surface the works of other artists that had been perhaps previously marginalized but are really feel central to the discussion now. I think that's happening so much in parallel. So um, really critical that the work we're doing here reflects that. We were talking about this chronological spine of the permanent collection, but there seemed to be some time travelers thrown in, if you if you will. Um, one that struck me was a 1967 painting by Faith Ringgold that's right near Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon. Um, why are those two paintings in the same gallery? Because Anne Temkin's a genius. <laughs> Anne Temkin is our chief curator of painting and sculpture. And, and I have to say, the moment she first kind of she, she, there was no big ta-da moment, actually. I, th- I think I actually wandered into the room where we had all of the models for what we were planning, and all of a sudden I saw Faith in that room. And I was like, oh, wow. Anne's been in here, and she's been doing some really intense thinking. Um, and, you know, I think it will it will mean something different to each of us. Um, for me, it... it falls in a line of kind of this questioning of those histories that we had always taken for granted. Um, if we learned modern history, modern art history at MoMA, um, we, we took for granted that, that the Demoiselle d'Avignon was the work, right? It was the instigator of so much of what was to follow. And I think Faith's uh, painting doesn't, it doesn't um, attack that theory necessarily, but it calls into question what the results have actually been. That's my read on it. And I I just find that such a fascinating, such a thrilling, exhilarating moment um, that, that Anne brought us. I think it also speaks to the through lines that we see kind of across time in the things that artists are dealing with. And um, I think critical to acknowledge the way that certain moments influence subsequent generations of artists. So I think Faith herself has talked about coming to look at that picture and being, um, you know, really wrestling with it. Um, Michael Armitage, who has a project show that's up with us right now, was organized by Thelma Golden and Legacy Russell of the Studio Museum while their building's under construction. That show has in it a picture called Niali Beach Boys, which is also an exact reference to Demoiselles. It's five male figures, each of them scaled exactly to its corresponding figure upstairs. So I think it's a work with such a lasting resonance that so many artists have wrestled with and being able to acknowledge that not only in a textbook, but also in space where you can see them together and really think about that is incredibly exciting. Well, beyond the Picasso and the Ringgold, when I attended the press preview, I noticed some really surprising juxtapositions, uh, starting with the opening galleries on the fifth floor. Can you tell us about that installation? I I definitely can, (laughs) since many years of my professional life here behind the scenes have been dedicated to figuring out what that opening sequence should feel like. And with the full acknowledgement that it may not in, in, in reality be the beginning for anyone. There are so many ways to kind of approach the galleries at MoMA now, which are exciting. But if someone does choose to start at the clear beginning of the chronology, we wanted um, an explicit acknowledgement for me. I mean, my argument was that modernism didn't start poof out of painting, right? It, it really There were other factors in play. And so when you walk into that first gallery, 
and you see in front of you Starry Night, there should be this moment. I have this moment of relief. Oh, right. I mean, the, the modernism that I learned hasn't totally gone away. But then you take two steps and you turn your head and you see 19th century, late 19th century photography and very early film. And you realize, hey, something else was going on. And, and the film I chose to, to be kind of front and center through that portal um, is from 1905. It's Interior New York Subway. Um, and for me, that film captures so many things. First of all, it captures New York, which I thought was essential to get in the first breath of the conversation here at a quintessential New York institution. And I always felt that was kind of missing at the beginning of MoMA's story. It's like New York was critical to, um, to this place existing and this narrative um, emerging. And it's also probably how most visitors got here, right? Perhaps on that same line on uh, Lexington Avenue. Uh, and the subway probably, alas, looks very much the same over 100 years later. Um, but that familiarity, that, that, um, that kind of understanding that, hey, this is, I, I know what that is. I, I recognize that. I was actually just part of that. Um, that, for me, has also been really critical to my experience with modernism. It's, 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 a, it's something that I can immediately identify with, whether I approach it through film, which is usually how I do it, or through photography, or even through painting. It's not something that you need to go to a palace or, you know, somewhere where, you know, only the, the very, very elite can go. This is something that was made by people who probably traveled on that system and were mesmerized by this new technology, this new urbanism um, at 1905. And I think that that remains really critical to, to what this institution stands for and can support. I noticed also that there's this gnarled um, pottery in the middle of yes. the first gallery by someone from Mississippi who apparently was contemporaneous with the post-impressionists. That's right. Um, you want to take that yeah. one? <laughs> so that's George Orr, who I believe it was a, a self-nickname, the Mad Potter of Biloxi. And um, again, if you go back to the museum's founding decades, you will find the work of self-taught artists. You will find children, the work by children. You will find the work of Toulouse-Lautrec and Redon and Cezanne, of course. And I think finding that um, really kind of vibrant mix of voices again is something that kicks off right there in Gallery 501, where you do see the work of an American artist who's working in what some would say is a craft tradition that is not the kind of household name that Cezanne and Van Gogh are, but um, ex equally exploring these kinds of radical issues and into form and how things get made. I think it's along with the the incredible gesture that, that Raj has, has orchestrated in Gallery 502 just feels like a really fresh way to start while also having... Your, your friends there with you, your Starry Night and your Rousseau and your Boy in the Red Vest. I see that the galleries have lost some of their old titles like Surrealism or Abstract Expressionism in favor of new ones. I saw one that's labeled uh, War Within, War Without. How did that come about? Well, I mean, certainly there is somewhat of an explicit rejection of isms, of this kind of, you know, notion that you must march through time according to certain art historical designations that have come to be accepted as natural. Um, I think also, it again, it gets back to this kind of immediate entry. It's like you're seeing what it actually is. You're not wrong if you don't understand how it fits into some sort of art historical chronology you can appreciate it for what you're actually seeing. I actually love the 
what we would have formerly called pop galleries that Sarah organized. And what what title did you give it? It's From Soup Cans to Flying Saucers. There you go. (laughs) You're seeing what you're getting. Um, And then from, you know, you kind of move in deeper layers from there, obviously. Then there's a panel with text about the gallery overall and their individual descriptions for some of the works on the walls. So if you want to go deeper, and then there's audio guides. So we, we want to give people um, a kind of generous point of entry, and then if they want to dig deeper, they can. I see also that the museum plans to rotate a selection of art in and out of the galleries every six months. That is correct. <laughs> Did you want to get more things out of storage? or Absolutely. I mean, the, so the collection is tremendously deep and rich and broad. We only show a very small percentage of it all the time. And the, the other thing, we've talked about this a little bit, is as you let go of some of these, of the kind of isms-driven move through the galleries and you kind of bring in other moments or other histories, other stories... You want to continue to let people know that this we're not replacing one version with another. What we're suggesting is that these galleries are constantly in evolution, and hope we hope that they will constantly be in response not only to the galleries and objects around them, but to the world at large. And so to that end, we've made this commitment. Um, we will rotate a third of the collection galleries every six months. Now, sometimes that means wholesale change. Sometimes that means that... Half of the pictures in the gallery will rotate, but maybe your Starry Night stays, or maybe it moves next door and has some new friends in there. But the idea is that hopefully every time you come to MoMA, there will be new works for you to see, and the idea of that permanent collection is actually a collection that's constantly in motion. Well, you're a drawings and prints curator, so you were probably accustomed to moving things off display, onto display, because they were so fragile they couldn't be out there for long. It's true. I mean, works on paper, um, whether you're talking about posters or lithographs or graphite, um, all are sensitive to light. And so we have always thought carefully about how to move those works into and out of spaces with some regularity. So now we just get to apply that on a broader basis. And as we were developing this strategy, I mean, we knew pretty quickly um, after embarking on this this new initiative that no one installation would be able to capture all of the stories that were, had emerged as part of our research. And um, so we did a kind of survey. Are how many quote unquote sacred cows are there? Right, just works that we knew would be suicidal either from our own you know intellectual point of view or from a visitation point of view. Um, to not have on view, like what must be always on view. And the number was so much smaller than we could have ever imagined. And I have to imagine that once visitors start experiencing what's on view now, both that number might even decrease a little bit or shift from works we thought would actually be sacred cows to new works which become sacred cows. And will the visitors will say, hey, wait a minute. I can't go into that gallery without, let's say, face work there, right? You know, and so we'll have to kind of readjust constantly based on new audience appreciation, new scholarship that emerges from these displays. Um, and we, again, knew that that rotation would have to be involved if that were to be the case. Okay, so you've implied that Starry Night and Demoiselle, for example, will stay on view. Uh, what about Andy Warhol's Campbell Soup Cans? I think um, Warhol is such kind of a tentpole figure in our collection and um, is one of those kind of general points of reference. I think you'll you'll be able to see Andy on view when you come here to MoMA. Whether it will always be the same work, um, hard to say. And it may not always be a painting. 
That's it right. might be his films or his photographs. Um, right now you have a, a whole gallery dedicated to his films, and that will rotate over the next 18 months of different films. Very, very um, pleased that we right now are showing Sleep as, as part of the selection um, featuring John Giorno in a five-and-a-half-hour performance. Um, John rec- passed away over this, this past weekend. Um, and so for all of us, I think it's now become a shrine um, in a way, uh, not only to Andy's great genius as a filmmaker, but to John and his influence on, on art making over the last 50 years. So, Raj, do you feel that film is finally getting its due in a way that it hadn't before? We're, we are quite ego-driven, but I have to say I, I never felt excluded. I mean, I always tell my team and, you know, try and tell people, look, film, the film department had the most to gain because we weren't on view upstairs for the most part and the least to lose because we got to keep our spaces, right? We have four cinemas here, which we use every day, and we have avid film goers and a rich discussion going on. So we added a huge amount to our presence in the institution. And what I hope it does is encourage people not only to think more broadly about, obviously, uh, modern art history and contemporary uh, art history, but how essential the moving image has been throughout. Now, three exhibitions have been organized for the reopening, three temporary exhibitions, all of them drawn from the permanent collection. I see that there's a survey of modern Latin American art and two solo shows dedicated to African-American artists, Betty Saar and Popel. Do these choices underline a sort of the general shift in philosophy? I, I would hesitate to put make them too emblematic of any one thing. Um, certainly, we argue very strongly that um, certainly Popel and Betty Saar are at points in their career where they are utterly deserving of this recognition and thrilled that we could time them uh, for the opening. Um, they also both in each of those shows involves other institutional partnerships. Um, so the timing was, was quite dependent on what was happening in L.A., what was happening in, in New York with Popel. Um, but certainly if people would like to read into the fact that um, these shows uh, are on view now as representative of MoMA, I have no problem at all with that. <laughs> MoMA's also carved out a new two-story space for experimental programming. Can you tell us a little bit about that? studio, the Kravis oh. studio, which is truly um, one of the gems of the expansion. It's such a beautiful space. Um, and it's a purpose-built space. It was designed to house live art, performance, sound, um, expanded cinema, and is incredibly flexible. It was really designed to kind of be able to respond to ideas that artists put forward. But it, it's a beautiful complement to the theaters that Raj was just talking about. And one of the great things about it is that it's really upstairs on the fourth floor within the flow of the collection galleries. So media and performance is the, I'm making air quotes, youngest of the curatorial departments here. And I think this expansion has given us an opportunity to make sure that we have a space in which we can um, talk about and show the history of live art and performance in a way that helps our audiences see and understand all of the ways that it's kind of baked into the way things have developed over the last 
really century. Um, so we're opening there with a beautiful installation by David Tudor and composers inside electronics called Rainforest 5. And the first year of programming in the studio, um, which has been brilliantly organized by Stuart Comer, our chief of media and performance with Ani Anevsky and Martha Joseph, is really designed to kind of test what that space can do. So they have a residency coming up. They have a workshop coming up. They are working on all kinds of things that will kind of allow us to test that space out and see see how it does. But as a kind of core part of your visit, I think it's a beautiful and wonderful addition to the experience that people can have here at MoMA. I also noticed something called a creativity lab. Is that right? The creativity lab. Yeah. So I don't know if you... So the Creativity Lab now occupies a space on the second floor of the museum. It's kind of just across from the atrium, so just a, a kind of step from the contemporary collection galleries. And that is a space for drop-in activities, for workshops, for artist conversations, for all kinds of things to happen, and really designed to let people kind of take the hopefully the inspiration that they get walking through those galleries and to think about how to actually actualize that, activate it in their own lives. So that space is staffed whenever the museum is open and you are welcome to drop in and see what's going on. They have a really great drop-in drawing activity that's happening there now among a number of other programs. And it's kind of a perfect complement to the art lab. The art lab is intended for younger audiences for children. That's over in the Coleman building and you can always drop by there I take small friends there all the time. But I think really important to recognize that, um, as our colleagues in education would say, never stop drawing. Like the opportunity to be creative exists throughout one's lifetime and making sure that we uh, find a way to kind of seed and encourage that I think is really great. So now, gallery by gallery, space is overwhelmingly de devoted to what MoMA owns. Does this mean that temporary exhibitions will no longer be big events at MoMA? <laughs> that is an impossibility. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, what? So there will absolutely be blockbuster um, temporary exhibitions coming down the pike in, in very short order, actually. But what won't change is our commitment to the collection in those spaces. So um, it's not. This is not a one-off. You will definitely come in the future to MoMA and see blockbuster exhibitions built around the collection, as opposed to blockbusters built only or exclusively or primarily around loans. Um, that is a commitment we made again as part of this process long ago. Was that we have such incredible richness in our own collection, so many stories to tell, that we have to rededicate ourselves to doing that at every level. Clearly, right now, we're, we're super thrilled that people are responding to what we've done in the, let's say, um, regularly programmed collection spaces. But in all of the other spaces in the museum, you will see collection pass through on a, on a very regular basis. Well, now that you've barely had a chance to catch your breath, are you already work at work on the next iteration of the galleries? Oh, my gosh. The checklists are done. <laughs> really? They yeah. have to be. We're on yeah, to round absolutely. three. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we're working on round three now. Yeah, and I realized um, a couple of weeks ago that why am I? Why do I care about getting through till October twenty first? That's when my season starts, right. right? That's when the film program starts again, and we have a really robust uh, fall season and winter season of programming. So this place is now um, nonstop freight train forever, right? We've kind of done that to ourselves. Which I'm, I'm very proud of, um, and I'm very much looking forward to the next generation of curators taking this and taking that steam forward with the acknowledgement. I mean, for us, we've been a part of 
two different types of MoMAs, right? Both Sarah and I have been here long enough to have been able to need to change the mode in which we work. Future generations, this will be the new mode and hopefully the regular mode. I'm sure they'll come up with something even more complex. But um, knowing that that um, they'll have the energy and the spirit to come into this with that mindset is is just thrilling. Well, thank you, Sarah and Raj. Pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back with the verdict on MoMA from the art newspaper's New York editors after this. In the last quarter of the 18th century, the Maratha Empire was the preeminent power in India. In recognition of the Marathas' importance, the East India Company assigned a resident to the court at Pune. A painting in Bonham's forthcoming Islamic and Indian art sale is witness to the close relationship between the Maratha court and the British during this period, before the East India Company toppled the Maratha Empire in 1818. The portrait of Noor al-Din Hussein Khan by the Scottish artist James Wales was painted in 1792 and depicts the resident's vikal or agent. As Bonham's head of Islamic and Indian art, Oliver White, reminds us, this portrait exemplifies the work of British artists in India in the late 18th century. It also provides a fascinating insight into one of the rarely documented Indian courts in the final years of its ascendancy. The painting has another layer of interest. It's from the collection of the late Queen of Jordan. It's thought that she was given it as a housewarming present when she moved to London. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, was an expansion of MoMA actually necessary? And do the new galleries work? After attending press previews, three editors from the art newspaper's New York office, Helen Stoilus, Margaret Carrigan and Nancy Kenny, and our insider correspondent, Linda Yablonski, sat down this week to compare notes. Well, I heard a statistic that 27% of the works on view in the new MoMA were acquired only in the last five years. Well, this is the sub-narrative to the narrative of modernism. There's another story going on there, which is all the omissions and the holes they needed to plug and the uh, kind of prejudices of previous committees or trustees or however, you know, they hated pop art in the beginning. I mean, it took them a long time to get a Rauschenberg and a Warhol and they had to be gifts practically. Uh, And the same has been true of uh, work by particularly female artists, even Cindy Sherman. It took them 15 years to catch up to the film stills. And a lot of them were bought by other people for the museum. Uh, 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 women and artists of color, artists from India and Africa and the Middle East. Uh, it's uh, and I I think the curators did an amazing job of integrating these works into the collection, which is it still has a linear narrative. But I was reading all the wall labels to see how many years passed between the making of that object and the acquisition. And even Faith Ringgold, whose mural is now hanging, you know, juxtaposed to maybe the most famous or important work in the museum by Picasso, the Lady Demoiselle d'Avignon, you know, it's groundbreaking. The Ringgold is bra- groundbreaking for different reasons that don't necessarily have to do with pa- the issues regarding painting. But there, there is a relationship, and it is interesting. It's a little bit jarring, but it's a, but nonetheless, I felt proud of the museum for putting it there. 
I think that that room, I mean, there's been a lot of ink spilled on that room already because it seems to have some people really lauding it and others saying, what does this have to do with one thing or the other? That was a really like, you know, kill the father kind of moment to hang the Ringgold so near the Picasso. And I think that, that I think you're right. Like, I think it's very bold and I think it is a big statement on what they're trying to do. And it kind of loops us back to your, your um, stat, which, you know, 27% of it is recently acquired. Well, I think that has to do with like the changing nature of museums today who are, you know, the reason maybe so many of these works have recently acquired because they are trying to address these huge gaps in their acquisition models that have not been adequately um, looked at before, you know, this kind of general societal consensus that we need to be more inclusive and diverse in our and in, in what we represent within our cultural institutions. I also think there has been a huge generational shift within the curatorial staff, yeah, which yeah. now skews much younger. And these curators are much more interested in artists that haven't been properly um, addressed in the past. And they're also more into this integration of media yeah. Which I, you know, when MoMA closed last time in 2003 for the 2004 expansion or whenever it closed, when it when it was in Queens. Yeah. But before the museum shut down, they did this jumble, these three shows where they jumbled up everything and it didn't work at all. Not at all. This, I think, is pretty successful, particularly when it comes to film. Because yeah. MoMA has... I mean, I don't know where there's a better collection of film. But early my, film, especially. That's what I mean. Yeah. All the all these early films that you would never see unless you were a scholar and were requested and a screening. And they're treasures. I mean, they're treasures of the yes. medium, you know? And they absolutely fit where, in the galleries totally. where you see the, these films. I was riveted by a lot of them, and, and it really did add context and meaning to the collection. And seeing seeing not just films that are related to the works, I remember that, you know, that great Wilfredo Lamb jungle painting shown next to that film, Bambaya Dern, that is choreography kind of in this jungle setting, which was just so perfect of a pairing. But then you see how artists themselves were using the medium. There was a Man Ray room where it had an early film by Man Ray, yes. you know, so it, it, it adds depth that adds, you know, um, so, so, so much to the story of, other works of art, you know, it really kind of expands that. Yes, and, that- and I, I, there was one point where I just had to sit down, and you know, there are a lot more benches now and in in places to sit. I just sat down in front of this video of Merce Cunningham that I'd never seen before, and I was mesmerized by it. And it was in the gallery with the Jasper Johns and the Rauschenberg Combine, oh, right. the, the Canyon. And uh, uh, and and uh, Rauschenberg had done the costumes for this particular dance. I don't remember which one it was, but I hadn't seen it before. And um, John Cage did the sound, and it it I think it was filmed in Cunningham's studio because it's very close up and in, in performance. If you went to a theater, you would never see what you see on the screen so close, and it, it was mesmerizing and uh, on my second tour of that room i found joan jonas sitting there in exactly the same condition (laughs) riveted mesmerized by 
watching Cunningham move. He was young when this was filmed. It was in the 70s. He was a very early experimenter with video as well as everything else. And uh, I was really happy to see it. I was happy all the time I was there, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't an experience I've always had at MoMA. Well, on a member's preview day that we went, I, I, you would say the biggest knots of people were in front of the films. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's what... That's no one's where seen people, them before. And that's oh. where people would gather it, and that's where you kind of saw things, yeah, that you wouldn't see before. And that whole room that they dedicated to, like, experimental photography and film mm-hmm. that actually precedes the um, Picasso and Ringgold room, which is basically like a statement saying, if you're going to look at 20th century modern art, you have to understand that the camera happened. And, like, I thought yeah, that was really art, interesting. The art of the 20th yeah. century. And also, uh, in related to that, in the smaller theater of the two movie theaters at the museum, they're having, I forget what they call it, on Fridays, that theater is open to the public for the price of the admission, not a special ticket. You don't need a special ticket. You can walk in and out, and they're going to show programs of these early, very rarely screened films. So that's fantastic. I mean, it makes me want to go every Friday, which is the day I usually avoid because it's free day. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, usually I mean, too crowded. It, I think I think that is the kind of big test is what what the experience will be like when it opens and and there is that rush to see it because I think rightly, you know, people want to see what they've been reading about it. They've been reading about it in us. They've been reading about it in other publications. What are they actually going to see? And when we went on the members preview, it was a very different visiting experience. Not that it was bad, but it wasn't that same kind of special feeling you got being kind of one-on-one with a lot of these works and and having that. But that's like going to an opening on a a normal traffic day. Yeah. uh, it's, It's, you know, when you go to the Met to some blockbuster show, you don't see anything. And But the Met is big enough that you can wander off into yeah. some other gallery and there was to- a better flow definitely yeah. even with uh, even yeah. on the members preview day where it was more crowded than on the press previews or on the artist previews there was a definitely an Im- improvement in the flow of people there wasn't that same kind of bottlenecking you you could if if people were crowded around starry night or if people were crowded around picasso you know um you could move on and find something in a different gallery that was just as engaging if not more so you know so i think it I think it'll work, but the real test is when those that big influx of people comes on because I do think it is going to get super crowded. But uh, I wanted to say the other thing, aside from the film, that I liked about this introductory show, and it is an introduction. It's a little bit one from column A, column B, as far as the choices of works are concerned, although they're going to rotate every three and six months of the permanent collection, so it won't remain static because there's certainly a lot, you know, I know they have that wasn't there. But they were the, the, the other thing that's almost never out are the, from their archives and the library, there are, you know, there's a Rosemary Trockel mm. room of, of books and printed material. There's the uh, um, uh, in the uh, contemporary galleries. There are some uh, books and pamphlets and posters by Latin American artists. There's the Frank O'Hara room. 
and uh, I found these very fascinating and beautiful to look at, and I haven't ever seen most of it. Something there's a crazy statistic. I think that is that only two percent of MoMA's entire collection is comprised of paintings and sculptures. The rest is all ephemera like that that they've got on view. So switching it out is, I mean, like there's a reason we've seen so little of it is it's just so easy to file away. So the fact that they're getting out is huge. Um, But it does kind of bring up like an issue of like, it's a huge amount of work to just try and switch all of that very delicate kind of material that actually has a lot of like major conservation issues around it, which is part of the reason they're going to switch it out as often as they are. Um, which I mean, that's well, not gonna be just a huge that, endeavor. but everything. Yeah, the everything paintings, except yeah, the, the exactly. real, like the Picasso room. Yeah, they're not going to change that. But I mean, that kind of that kind of shows how the the that kind of breakdown of barriers between departments yes. has influenced the yes. installation overall. Because prints and drawings, they're used to taking their works on and off show. You know, sculpture, you can leave that thing up for years. You don't have to shift it, and, and you don't want to if it's tons. You know, well, the Richard Serra. How often are they going to move that? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They put it in first. Really? (laughs) Well. (laughs) Make sure the floor stays. Tons. But I would would like to see one of those third floor galleries where there are temporary shows just devoted to books. Uh, They never have a gallery just for books uh, from the library, not in the store. Did any of the juxtapositions, though, in the galleries surprise you, like... Other than the Ringgold and the Picasso? Other than the Ringgold. Well, uh, we've all spoken about this a little bit, but uh, Alma Thomas is a painter I have long admired Mm -hmm. and have flocked to shows of her, I mean flocked, uh, run to shows of her work. Uh, But this uh, commendable desire to be inclusive did force some very strange uh, selections within the uh, the contemporary galleries, mostly. It didn't upset me that they put an Alma Thomas abstract painting into the Matisse room, but it seemed it didn't show that painting to advantage. No, it, didn't it didn't take anything away from Matisse, but it, it didn't really... It didn't do it justice. No. Yeah. And I found that happening even more on the sixth floor of the environment, contemporary environments. I mean, it's the... they. There are some temporary shows right now in the museum, and that's one of them, even though everything comes from the collection. Things need time to acquire authority, Mm. and uh, we don't always know what the masterworks are going to be, and that's what you want to see in a museum like MoMA. And uh, even though I like, I admire most of the artists, like Sadie Benning, I think she's a wonderful artist. I think her work was not shown to advantage, which was supposed to be about environments, and it was just like a painting show, and it was in a room too large for the paintings. The Alora and Calzadilla wasn't their strongest work, and when there's no performance going on, it's kind of, you know, dull. Um, The Arthur Jaffa film is the best, the strongest work on Mm. that floor. It's, uh, uh, you know, kind of compulsive viewing. It won't let you go once you get in there. Um, so that was a little, and the Sarah Z also, I think she's a brilliant artist, but the, the, where they had it was really, you just, you know, could pass right by and it wouldn't, and not engage with it, which I thought was a pity. 
because it's a very good work, but not in the right circumstances. One of the galleries I liked was on the fourth floor. I think it was number 420. And the title was one of those quirky ones, you know, War Within, War Without. And you had, I guess the work dated from about mid-60s to the late 70s. And it, in the center of the room, there's something called Prison Notebook by a Sudanese artist um, who was in prison in 1975 and, and began filling a sketchbook when he got out with, you know, vivid prose and poetry and pen and ink drawings. But in the same room, you find people who are struggling with violence in an internal way, like Philip Guston. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there are many works from people by different countries, from Japan, from Korea. There's a video in the same room of Lottie Rosenfeld's art action piece, which she did in Chile to protest Pinochet. And you see her painting crosses onto the pavement in right. this symbolic mm-hmm. protest. I, I thought they really worked all together, even though the works were so different at the same yes, time. Yes, and all those are there. David Hammonds is in that room. Paul Tech. I would expect to see if that was a show by itself. I could, I would expect to see that at pre MoMA PS one, <laughs> but not in MoMA itself. So I thought that was an amazing step forward, uh, and had to do with the curatorial, the makeup of the curatorial staff right now in their understanding and interest in works like this and in a subject that's very much of this moment. I saw a particular, um, the room dedicated uh, on the second floor in the contemporary modern, uh, like 1970s to contemporary mm-hmm. space was um, the, it, it's not a surprising juxtaposition of artists, but I actually really liked the conscientiousness with which they approached this particular moment in history, which is there was a room that was with Cindy Sherman's film stills and Louise Waller. Well, that's and where Dara the Burnbaum. story begins. Imagine right. with three women, from, you know, and exactly so, like just amazing. All from the pictures generation, which has been so <laughs> yeah. long dominated as this like teleological thing from Andy Warhol and pop to, you know, Richard Longo and Richard, mm-hmm. Richard Prince and Robert rescues me, Robert <laughs> Longo, Richard Prince. And, um, you know, and just to have it be like, nope, like just quiet for a minute, guys. Like, here's three women that really like knocked that whole movement out of the park, and they don't really like go deep into it. It's just such a powerful commentary on at, like mass culture and and media from these three powerhouse women. I thought I was like, wow, like they don't even need to say any more about these like other things. Like they can just tell that story for a minute, and it was really nice to see that, like. You know, I, I, because I, you know, am involved in the art world, know the backstory and know some of that history, but like the average viewer might not. So just to walk into that and not, you know, to not be confronted with a persona as big as Richard Prince and instead have these three powerful women speaking to that. I thought that was a great use of the room and a great way to posit the whole thing. And the next room is also all women or just, just about all women. I think uh, that's the room where the Gretchen Bender installation is. Yeah, I'm and, so happy that uh, that's Jimmy DeSanna, well. I think, was the only male artist in that room with Laurie Simmons and Barbara Kruger and Singen and Goody and uh, Marin Hassinger. And uh, I, I thought that was a, a very good installation. Again, plenty of room around everything. I've always hated this particular floor. <laughs> because it's the ceilings are way too high and the lighting's been very harsh and but uh, the lighting now throughout the museum is focused, it's, it's dimmed, and it enhances the art and also the overall environment. It just it warms it up. And 
Uh, they did build walls in these humongous galleries, which helped. Uh, the uh, I, I, I loved beginning with these two spaces. And then you walk into like the guy room, but it's so well installed. It makes so much sense. The Jeff Koons Pink Panther. I love that you call it the guy room. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a Jenny Holzer Lady Pink yes, painting yeah. <laughs> in there too. It's an 80s painting. but the, the, That herring but, mural is nice, the way it wraps around yes, the wall and the Burton chairs the, and the, the Basquiat. Yeah. Well, now here's part of the sub-narrative because yeah. the Basquiat... Here's another hole they have to plug. They have to plug this hole in the collection. And that painting says private collection on the wall. And this is supposed to be a collection show, Mm. but they didn't have one. So I asked about it. Apparently, it's a private gift, a promise gift that they haven't concluded yet, but or maybe they're pressuring whoever owns it <laughs> to give it to the museum because it looks fantastic yeah, it really where does. it is. And it's a very, very good painting and uh, a great example of Basquiat, if not the of the top three or so that have already made it into other museums or private collections. But uh, that was, uh, that. speaking of juxtapositions of things, that did give me pause to see a loaned work in this, yeah, in this collection. Point. But it was so needed, uh, and particularly in that room. Um, oh, yeah, because otherwise that, it would have been overpowered by the Coons. No, I don't think so. No? No, no. do you think? I think so. Well, I, it framed the Coons, between the Herring and the Basquiat, it framed the Coons rather nicely. But it's in the middle of the room, but it's the two paintings are bigger. Yeah. They take up more space anyway. <laughs> What did you think of the artist choice room? Oh, with Amy I Simmons? did want to mention that. I think that is one of the most successful artist choice I rooms agree. they've I ever had. Awesome. Yeah, and I guess she designed the display as well, which yeah. is on shelves and you know, sort of salon style, put on shelves and a, a wild selection. Only an artist, but not a curator, would make a selection of old and new works yeah. like this, big ones, little ones. Uh, there were a couple of sculptures in mm-hmm. there. It wasn't just, it was mostly paintings, but uh, it, it was like the whole rest of the museum, full of life and energy and something interesting to look at at every step. I mean, it was the one room where things were sort of crowded together, but it all added to the um, experience, the uh, very enjoyable experience of looking at these and it paintings. Was, it was nice that it was kind of in the middle of the new gallery. I so couldn't it wasn't, find it. It wasn't shuttled. To, you couldn't find <laughs> no, it? No, I, I kept saying, where's the Silman? Where's the Silman it was, it, it was in the middle of the two new buildings, right? Yeah. So, so it's I kind get, of in the... Yes. It was a nice palette cleanser yeah. in some ways, like as yeah. you're moving around, just to remind yeah. you, like art is, is fun. Like you're surrounded by all these big things, you know, and just be like, oh, no, no, no. Like sometimes you can just like what you like and yeah. think that's it. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. it was quirkier. It, yeah. it was nice yeah. with that on, because that was on the... Which floor was that? It was on fifth, the fifth floor. Fifth on the, floor on with the where, where you expect yeah. to see the older works in the collection. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, some of them were. And then below that, on the fourth floor, is that studio space, which is right now installed with that sound, sculptural rainforest, installation, yeah. rainforest. Um, 
but, the David Tudor. Yeah, the David Tudor. Which I also thought was a supremely Beautiful. successful yeah. installation it's of stunning. sound and object. It's and great. A, a, in, with a window on the street yeah. connected to the city. And you could see it from the street if you looked up. Uh, but beautiful, beautiful. And yeah. the galleries next to it, I was fascinated by too. I mean, that it opened into of videos from the 70s mm-hmm. and uh, work uh, by artists who were experimenting them then, like Trisha Brown, or there was a kind of home movie of uh, uh, artists sitting at tables at food, the restaurant that Gordon Monte Clark opened uh, in Soho. Uh, I think he made the film actually, and uh, and then you walk into Pop, <laughs> and that's real. And the minimalist room I thought was really well installed, and there was work in there I hadn't seen before, and I thought everything had a really good relationship. It was just sheer pleasure. I, I mean, it was exciting. The architecture pieces that were in, I thought, yeah. really added I to that story. That that the um the integration of like the architecture yeah. and design objects was really interesting, especially yeah. when you were headed towards the uh, Monet Water Lily Room, which where, now has is back in its own room. Yeah, exactly, it has its be. own room <laughs> again. But before you get there, you go through this very regimented Bauhaus installation, <laughs> and so you're walking in to the the water lilies and you see them and then on either side you have these very very geometric drawings from the bathhouse and you're just like this is such a strange but really effective moment because these were near contemporaries and just the ways of thinking of like essentially utopia is kind of like this very different thing i loved that moment that was one of my favorite like for me one of the most successful moments within the whole install was just the way that that act like is very subtly just butts up against one another and you kind of like I don't know. It's, it was a fun moment for me, but it still costs twenty five dollars. However, to visit now, it's a bargain. Yes. Before it was a ripoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get a lot for twenty five dollars. Well, there's no way. There's no way to go in there and get out quickly no. anymore. Uh, it, it reminded day, yeah. me of going to IKEA when you go for one thing and you have to see every single thing in the store before you get to the exit. So if they could get some Swedish meatballs, though, <laughs> I would be there all day. So it sounds like no one here mourns the previous version of MoMA. I think that it's it's a start. And I think that's that's what everyone I think that's maybe some of the energy behind it right now is that it's just it's it's nice to see it livened up a little bit and it's it's an invitation to think about it more. And it and it's not you're right. It runs the risk of tokenism in some ways. Like I think even even with this whole rehang, only a quarter of the work on view is by women. I don't know what the stats are for. I think it's around twenty eight percent. It yeah. felt like yeah. a lot right. more. I was yeah. surprised it, yeah. to read that statistic because yeah. it did feel you felt the presence of women very prominently. Yes, uh, absolutely you know. in the contemporary floors, but also in the modern well, floors where they were. I mean, in the in the abstract expressionist rooms, you finally saw Joan Mitchell. And you know, Helen Grace Frank Hardigan and, and yes, Lee exactly. Krasner. Totally. And there's that beautiful fluorine set timer room, which I just I love that. I want that to never go away. <laughs> it's funny because that I think that's due to be switched oh, out in six months. Keep it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one I think that's one of the ones. And she's changing. such a great New York artist, you know. I think I, I this is one thing I will say. I, I really can't wait if if the if these kind of new stories of modern and contemporary art are being told, I can't wait until they become the old stories. I can't wait until Faith Ringgold is one of those artists who would be missed at the museum, you know? Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
The Museum of Modern Art in New York reopens on the 21st of October. And you can read a wealth of reporting on the building and the displays on our website at theartnewspaper.com, on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store, and in the November print edition of the Art Newspaper, which is out at the end of this month. And that's it for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and if you've enjoyed it, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. You might also want to subscribe to the Art Newspaper itself. Go to theartnewspaper.com to find the subscription to suit you so that you can read our reporting across multiple platforms. While there, you can also subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Click the newsletter link at the top right of our homepage. And do check out our new monthly newsletter called Market Eye with comment and analysis every month from our market experts in London and New York. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David also does the editing. Thanks to Sarah and Rajendra, Nancy, Helen, Margaret and Linda and thank you for listening. Join us next week when we'll be in Paris for one of the biggest art events of the year, the Leonardo Exhibition at the Louvre. Will the Salvatore Mundi be there? We will, so join us to find out. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.